Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to this Grantham Research Institute public lecture. Um, my name is Simon Dietz, and I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute. Um, our speaker tonight is Professor Geoffrey Heal. Uh, Jeff is Paul Garrett, Professor of Public Policy and Business Responsibility, and Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia Business School, and a Professor of a great deal else, I think, as well, but time forbids me from going any further. He's also the Grantham Research Institute's first visiting professor, and we're delighted to have him because he's one of the world's leading economists on issues of the environment and natural resources. Indeed, uh, Jeff's first book on the topic, Economic Theory and Exhaustible Resources, which he wrote with Partha Descupta, was published in 1979, which was a time, I'm sure he will forgive me for conjecturing, when to Nick Stern the environment was probably a bit of a problem with the shrubs at the bottom of the garden. Since then, Jeff has written or ed edited the small matter of 15 more books, including on the protection of valuable ecosystems and on corporate social responsibility. Tonight, though, he's going to take on the controversial territory of the economics of climate change. Can you or can you not make an economic case for strong reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, starting now? Is there, in fact, any controversy at all? How do the thoughts of economists get reflected in media and public debate? Just before we start, I just want to make a couple of logistical points. Uh, we have the room until 8 o'clock. Um, Jeff will speak for about three quarters of an hour, and so there will be ample time at the end for questions. Um, so I, if I can ask you to uh, sit on your uh, burning questions until the end of his lecture, we can take them then. And indeed, at the end of the lecture, uh, the stewards will be on hand with portable microphones to bring around so you can ask your questions. So, uh, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Geoffrey Hill. high-tech piece of kit, which has already exceeded our combined ability to work <laughs> Right. Um, Alt-tab. Right. So what do I do next? There you go. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you, Simon, for those kind words. Um, <clears throat> so Simon said, I want to talk about climate change and how economists think about climate change and what there is in this area that has been controversial, or that might continue to be controversial from an economics perspective. Um, let me give you a bit of background, first of all. I mean, the reason we're talking about climate change, obviously, is that human impacts on the planet have grown sort of exponentially uh, during the last half century. You know, a century ago, it was almost inconceivable that humans could have enough impact on the planet to really change the course of the planet and change the evolution of the planet. In the last 50 years, you know, humans have got to the point where they really can have a major impact on how the planet behaves and how it operates. Um, this is partly a function of the size of the human population. At the start of the Industrial Revolution, the population was around about a billion. Uh, today, it's 6.7 billion. It'll be up to 9 billion within the lifetime of many people in this room here. That's just a huge change, a factor of 10 right there. But also a change, it's a function of the, the change in our grasp of technology and our extraordinary technological achievements over this period. So today we're in a position to actually have an impact on planetary systems like the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the hydrological cycle, 
and a whole lot of other ones. Now, the, um, perhaps one of the iconic events in the changing human relationship with the planet and our ability to alter the planet was the explosion of the first atomic bomb back in 1945, which you can see right there, brought to you by courtesy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the guy who ran the Manhattan Project. And when Oppenheimer watched the first explosion of an atomic bomb, uh, he turned to his neighbor. He was incidentally not just an atomic physicist, but also quite a distinguished Sanskrit scholar. And he turned to his neighbor and quoted from Bhagavad Gita and said, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It was a very appropriate remark for someone to make, having just uh, organized the first explosion of an atomic bomb. What's the relevance of that? Well, in some small way, all of us since then have shared that position. In some small way, all of us today are death, the destroyer of worlds. I mean, if you think about the impact that people in, the, United, in the, the UK or Western Europe or the US or other rich industrial countries have just going about their normal business, they have an enormous impact on the world. Uh, you know, everybody in Western Europe, for example, operating in their normal business mode for a few years probably has more harmful impact on the world than all of the atomic explosions so far to date. It's a provocative thought, but it's probably correct. And this is mainly through greenhouse gas emissions, although it's not exclusively through greenhouse gas emissions. There are other ways in which we're profoundly changing the planet and profoundly harming the planet. Now, the, uh, the science of climate change used to be controversial. Uh, I know, I guess people, scientists started studying the issues of climate change seriously back in the 1970s. Uh, and I guess this sort of science of climate change became widely accepted as, as essentially correct, uh, with a few I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed just a couple of years ago. Um, so there was a lot of controversy during the period during which that, that science settled down. Um, and some of that controversy was real and genuine and necessary, and some of it was false. Uh, one of the interesting things when you look back on that controversy was the extent to which there was deliberate misrepresentation and intervention in the debate, uh, in particular by entities like the Global Climate Coalition, which was an organization based in the US and funded by Exxon, the oil company, and by a number of big, oil, uh, big coal companies, not funded directly, but funded indirectly, some other indirect routes, which have recently become, uh, been publicly identified. Um, and they were attempting to, uh, uh, to generate uncertainty and make it appear that the science was weak when in fact it wasn't. Uh, and they were quite effective at doing that, I guess, as they managed to extend the period of debate on the, the validity of climate science by you know, somewhere in the region of five to ten years. Uh, quite a significant extension. Um, and I was, you know, something that really caught my attention the other day, about a week back, ten days back, there was a piece in the New York Times, actually, uh, about one of the people who was responsible for running the Global Climate Coalition. He'd been interviewed by the Times in the light of some revelations about you know, the, the funding of the Global Climate, Global Climate Coalition and the role that various energy companies have played in supporting that. And he'd made the, he made the remarkable statement that we actually never thought that the, the debate about it, we never thought that the science of climate change was wrong. We just wanted to make certain there was a proper public debate about it. It was a really striking and quite outrageous statement about it. Anyway, the debate about the science of climate change, I think, is now closed. Uh, but what is interesting, and another reason we're talking today, is that the, that debate has moved one stage. And the debate is now about the economics of climate change. So there are people who are saying, OK, we agree with you. Climate change is real. It's happening. Um, uh, so we don't dispute the science. But let's talk about the economics of climate change. You know, climate, you know, stopping climate change is expensive. It's costly. We're in a recession. It's something we can't really afford. Uh, so although there may be some, some validity to the science on climate change, you know, we've got to look at the economics of this carefully. Uh, and the economics suggest this is something we can't deal with. It's not appropriate to deal with. Uh, so that's really what I want to talk about and what many people who work on the economics of climate change are concerned with. Before I do that, I want to just make a few remarks about why there has been so much 
very, very strong opposition to the reality of climate change and to the adoption of policies on climate change in the United States. And obviously, the United States is clearly in a different category from Europe when it comes to climate change. There's really sort of strong, almost atavistic opposition uh, to the idea that climate change is real, to the idea that we need to take action on climate change in some still quite influential circles in the US. And that's, there's nothing quite equivalent to that in this country or in Western Europe. Um, and I'm not certain I fully understand still why that is, but I've got some suggestions which I just want to share with you briefly, and I'd be interested to get your comments on them afterwards. Um, one thing which I think relatively few people understand outside of the US, and indeed relatively few even in the US, is that the US is a major petrostate. Uh, when I talk about talk to you about a petrostate, you think I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, something like that. The US is actually a major petrostate. The US is the third largest producer of oil in the world. Biggest producer is Saudi Arabia, produces about 9 billion barrels a day. Second and third are Russia and America, producing both about 7 million barrels a day. The fourth biggest producer in the world is Kuwait, and it's down there at about 3.5 million barrels a day. So, you know, Russia, the US, and Saudi Arabia dominate the world oil market. You don't think of the US as a major oil producer, but it is. The US is also the second largest producer of coal in the world, uh, after China, and has the largest coal reserves in the world. It's also the second largest producer of natural gas in the world. So the US really is a major producer of fossil fuels. When you add together its positions in coal, oil, and gas, the US is actually the largest producer of fossil energy in the world, by quite a large margin. Uh, so that, I think, perhaps gives you some perspective into one of the sources of opposition to the, the reality of climate change in the U.S. context. Um, you know, the fossil fuel lobby in the United States is uniquely influential and uniquely powerful. I mean, you can see this very clearly in the Bush regime. Uh, it was clear that both oil and coal industry had enormously close access, enormously open access to all members of the administration. And indeed, many lobbyists for both oil and coal were appointed to quite influential positions within things like the Environmental Protection Agency uh, under the Bush uh, administration. And that's a reflection um, of you know, the power that the, the fossil fuel lobby has traditionally had. There's nothing new about this traditional uh, power that the fossil fuel industry has had in the United States. And of course, they're the people who stand to lose most uh, financially and economically from action on climate change. So it's understandable that they are using that considerable lobbying power uh, to oppose action on climate change and to to generate disbelief about the, the need for action on climate change. Now, in addition to that, there's a couple of other points I think are worth mentioning here. Um, one is that um, in the US, you still have quite a large group of what I would call Reagan-Thatcher conservatives, people who believe, to quote Reagan, the government is the problem and not the solution, people who believe in you know, unadulterated free markets and absolutely minimal role for government in the state. Uh, and if you hold that position, it's actually very difficult to reconcile that position with recognizing the reality of climate change, or indeed any environmental problem. Because climate change obviously is caused by the free operation of markets. It's a market failure. It's a massive market failure in economic terms. Uh, so if you're someone who really believes profoundly free markets get it right, then you can't combine that with a recognition of the reality of climate change. It's a kind of a cognitive dissonance that's going to arise in that context. Uh, so free market conservatives downplay climate change and downplay the need for government intervention here. And free market conservatives are still much more influential in the US than they are in Western Europe. We don't really have, I mean, there was a group of people like that who were influential under the Thatcher regime in this country, but the influence of that group has died away to a much greater extent than it has in the US. Obviously, it's no longer dominant in the US, as you can see from the last election, but it's still quite influential, uh, particularly amongst Republican senators, uh, and they, they constitute an important group here. 
Um, a final comment on this, which I think is, is interesting, and again, something which has, is important in the US and has no analogy over here, is that um, it's quite an influential group of what you call religious conservatives in the US. Uh, there's, there's no parallel to this group, really, in Western Europe. This is a group of people who actually believe that the, the, you know, that the Bible is the gospel truth. They believe you have to take the Bible literally. And there are significant senators and congressmen who actually believe this. It's difficult to, to, to see that sometimes from a Western European perspective, but it's true. Um, these people are actually very hostile to much of modern science. I mean, they're hostile to the theory of evolution. They're hostile to the, you know, the theories of planetary formation and planetary evolution because they, under, they undermine their, the beliefs that they choose to hold uh, in respect to the origin of species and the origins of the world. Um, and people like this are hostile to much modern science and skeptical about much modern science. And again, they're hostile to climate change and the theories of climate change for the same sorts of reasons. Their hostility to modern science carries over. And again, many people like this were appointed to important positions in the Bush regime, uh, something which has been very well documented. Um, so there's, you know, there's aspects of the US sort of political environment which are radically different from anything we have over here. Um, and which I think are responsible for the, the very strong opposition that there has been and actually continues to be uh, to you know, accepting the reality of climate change, to accepting the need for action on climate change, and to putting those actions into place. Okay, so I did a little bit of background on, on the history of climate change and the debate and the, some of the, where the, some of these controversies are coming from. Um, if you think about climate change from the perspective of an economist, there are a, a couple of things which are important. Uh, and where you know, there's scope for argument. The first is obviously valuing the social and economic consequences of a changing climate. You know, what does it mean to us for the climate to change? How does it affect us? Will it matter to us economically? Will it matter to us socially? Will it matter to us in other ways that the climate changes uh, over the next 50 to 100 years? Um, second issue is to talk about the, um, the risk of catastrophic outcomes. Now, people talk about climate tipping, change, tipping points and runaway changes in the climate system. Um, is there a risk of a sudden and abrupt and catastrophic change in the climate system? And if there is such a risk, you know, how do we think about that? How do we analyze that? And how do we, how do we factor that into our economic calculations, into our political calculations? And finally, at a slightly more abstract level, um, one of the characteristics of the climate change problem economically is that um, a lot of the costs of dealing with climate change are up front the costs we have to incur in the next couple of decades, you know, replacing coal-fired power stations by wind or solar or nuclear or coal with carbon capture and storage, switching from, uh, uh, from petrol-driven cars to electric cars, things like that. All of this, some costs associated with all of these things, and those costs, if we make the changes, will be incurred principally in the next 20, 30 years. Uh, the benefits from avoiding climate change uh, accrue to subsequent generations. They accrue to you know, people who will be living from 2040, 2050 onwards, and they will continue to accrue for, for hundreds of years. So in some sense, there's a kind of intergenerational transfer uh, involved in this. You know, the stopping climate change will involve the present generation incurring certain costs uh, and subsequent generations uh, living on the, receiving the benefits from those costs. So there's an intergenerational issue uh, which one has to think about and talk about a little bit. And that's also been a, a reason for some controversy in the economics of climate change. Let me talk about, I'm going to talk about the first two of these things here principally, the, the, the valuing the economic and social consequences of climate change and the risks of catastrophic outcomes and how we think about these. So let me talk a bit about the, um, the costs of a warmer world or the consequences of a warmer world. 
What effects does a warmer world have? Now, I've broken these down into two subcategories here. Um, the first being uh, those where I think that you know, we can use sort of market prices to some degree to place a value on, on the consequences. And the second thing, those where we really there's no way of using market information to, to place some kind of economic cost, economic value on the consequences. First category, I've got things like change in sea level, uh, impact of climate change on agriculture, impact on fish and fisheries, impact on human health, and impact on the water cycle worldwide, the, the hydrological cycle. And the second category, I want to talk principally about the extinction of a species and the sort of transformation of the biosphere and the natural world that's probably going to bring about over the next 100 to 150 years. I'll just go through each of these briefly. Um, sea level rise. So the um, sort of central forecast that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change left us with in its last report, published in 2007, was that sea level would rise uh, somewhere in the region two to three feet by the end of this century. Now, within a matter of months of that being published, Jim Hansen, who's quite a prominent climatologist in New York, works for NASA, um, came out with a paper uh, which suggested that even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases tomorrow, and completely stopped emitting greenhouse gases tomorrow, sea level would rise by 10 feet by the end of the century, and 10 feet again next century, uh, as a result of the greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere, um, the warming already underway. So you've got a fair range there. IPCC forecasting two feet, uh, Jim Hansen forecasting 10 feet as the sea level rise by the end of the century. And some people saying there's a chance of even an even higher rise than 10 feet. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, sea level rise. Now, a three meter rise, a 10 foot rise, which is what Hansen was forecasting, is actually a huge rise, has massive economic consequences, massive economic costs. Most major cities in the world are within 10 feet of sea level. Lots of London is within 10 feet of sea level. Uh, lots of New York is within 10 feet of sea level. And most major cities on the, in the world are on the coast at estuaries, which means there are places which are right at sea level. Uh, a lot of Tokyo is within 10 feet of sea level. A lot of Shanghai is within 10 feet of sea level. So I mean, a 10-foot rise in sea level is enough to wipe out a lot of infrastructure in a lot of countries in the world. Um, vast numbers of people in Southeast Asia live within 10 feet of sea level. Uh, need a lot of agricultural land in Southeast Asia is within 10 feet of sea level. So 10 foot, 10 foot rise in sea level is really quite significant, quite important, and has very, very far-reaching consequences. Two foot rise, on the other hand, is, is not enormously significant. It's, it's a significant, but it's not obviously nothing like the same category. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a debate here, a dispute here on the scientific side about what's the most likely outcome. Uh, and certainly at the top end of the range, you know, the consequence, the economic consequence, could be very, very far-reaching. Uh, you know, consequences in poor countries like Bangladesh, large parts of Bangladesh are uh, highly exposed to increases in sea level rise. But consequences in rich countries too. This is actually a slide which I got from um, a guy called John Holdren, uh, who is, was at that point it was at Harvard, but is now uh, President Obama's chief scientific advisor. Um, and it's a map showing what happens to Florida at various, uh, various amounts of sea level rise. So on the top left, as you look at it, is Florida today. The top right, as you look at it, is Florida if the uh, Greenland ice sheet melts. The bottom left is Florida if the West Antarctic and the Greenland ice sheets melt. And the bottom right is Florida, or rather the absence of Florida, uh, if all of the aforementioned ice sheets, if you know, three ice sheets melt, the uh, Greenland, the West Antarctic, and the East Antarctic ice sheets melt. Uh, so the melting of ice sheets has the potential to really transform the world's coastline. 
And you can see in that bottom right-hand case that we're looking at there, I mean, if that happened worldwide, you know, and obviously sea level, if it rises, rises worldwide, I mean, vast numbers of major cities would have gone, and a large fraction of the world's agricultural land would have gone. And fortunately, no one is suggesting that's likely to happen within the next couple of hundred years. Uh, but you can see it even at a few meters increase in sea level, a you know, single-figure digits increase in sea level. Now, the impact on the world's coastline is very significant. You know, the difference between the top left and the top right up there is that Miami, for example, has gone. And most of the expensive beachfront property in Florida has gone. Uh, very significant population movements would be occasioned by that. that, that. And uh, we haven't, haven't carried that slide on round, but uh, much of the Texas Gulf Coast for both the United States and Mexico would be underwater uh, in that same case there. Uh, so sea level rise has, has real consequences. Uh, just sort of stating that in a little more detail, there's uh, loss of infrastructure. I mean, an interesting point that you know, I, I'm, um, I'm aware of every time I fly in out of New York City is New York City has three airports. They're all pretty big, Kennedy, LaGuardia, and, and Newark. All of them are within a couple of feet, let alone meters, of sea level. Um, you know, if sea level rose five feet, all three of those airports would have to be moved. You could build a seawall around Manhattan. You couldn't build the seawalls around all three of the airports. And the cost of, imagine the cost of moving three major airports. Uh, imagine the political disputes associated with moving three major airports. I mean, you guys are having problems enough just locating a new runway at Heathrow, right? And the political disputes. And I suppose you wanted to land three completely new airports in populated areas. And uh, the amount of land that you need for that is just huge. Uh, and there are many airports around the world that are within a couple of feet of sea level. Um, so even in a modest rise in sea level causes a huge impact on infrastructure, which would necessitate massive investment in the, the rebuilding and the movement of infrastructure. I mentioned the loss of agricultural land. A surprising fraction of the world's agricultural land is within a few feet of sea level. Uh, and a couple of billion, about a billion and a half people live within 10 feet of sea level. Um, so again, there's modest rises uh, in sea level are very far-reaching consequences there. Um, would displace very large numbers of people. So um, those are some consequences of sea level, uh, potentially very, very significant. And they, oh, from an economic perspective, these are some of the easier things to deal with. You know, we can work out what are the costs of loss of infrastructure, what are the costs of the loss of agricultural land, and so on. So these are relatively easy to deal with. We talk next about the impact of climate change on agriculture. It will, of course, mean increasing frequency of droughts. Um, there's a couple of studies, uh, actually a growing number of studies, of the impact of climate change on agricultural productivity. And one of the most interesting ones, I think one of the most thorough ones, is a paper by some guys called Schlenker, Hanneman and Fisher, published in the American Economic Review a couple of years ago, which suggests that on a business-as-usual scenario, in other words, if we make no effort at all to curb climate change, unless things go ahead uh, as they are on present trends, then U.S. agricultural output which incidentally is 25% of world agricultural output, and the US produces 25% of all the food produced in the world, believe it or not. US agricultural output could drop by between 50 and 70% by 2100. That's a really dramatic drop. 50% drop in US agricultural output is a 12.5% drop in world agricultural output. Uh, that's very significant indeed. There have been similar studies recently carried out for India, China, and Africa by a number of authors, including Bill Klein in Washington, by the World Bank and others. And they find that for those countries, you know, the same set of assumptions, business as usual scenario from the IPCC, uh, agricultural output would drop by somewhere between 30 and 40% by 2100. Uh, so, and all of this, incidentally, is, is making one rather positive, rather favorable assumption, which is that 
Uh, climate change brings no change in the availability of water for agriculture. Uh, so that all these consequences for climate change are consequences that just come from the heat stress uh, that plants are subject to. And the real reason for these impacts here is that uh, plants show a very nonlinear response to changes in temperature. Uh, and as temperatures increase up to a certain point, plant productivity increases and plant growth increases and flattens out. And as the temperature crosses about the threshold of around about 32 degrees centigrade, uh, plant growth just stops and plants die very quickly. Um, so that's you know, the, princi the principal reason behind these, these dramatic figures here is that large parts of the world agricultural uh, territories will be subject to temperatures in excess of 32 degrees centigrade uh, by 2100. Uh, so on that assumption, and without any assumption at all about the availability of water, we get these rather dramatic results uh, about the impact of climate change on food supplies. Um, now I'll show you later on uh, estimates that suggest that the impact of climate change on water availability could also be quite dramatic. Uh, and there could be some far-reaching impact of climate change on water availability, which have a separate and independent impact on agricultural productivity worldwide. Um, so anyway, we're talking here about <clears throat> potentially a drop of <clears throat> 40 to 50 percent in world food production by the end of the century. <clears throat> and I'm just remind you that uh, most uh, dem demographers are forecasting that over this period of time, the world population will increase from six point whatever it is billion at the moment to around about nine billion. So we're talking about a dramatic drop in food availability coupled with a significant increase in population over the next uh, four, five, six decades. Um, impact of climate change on seas and on oceans. Again, quite far-reaching. Uh, what happens with climate change is, you know, obviously we get more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide dissolves in the seas. When carbon dioxide dissolves in water, it forms carbonic acid. If you remember your, your, your school chemistry. Uh, seas become more acidic, and they're already becoming more acidic. The pH of the oceans has changed quite significantly in the last 10 years alone. Um, and more acidic seas damages coral reefs. It's harmful to a number of marine organisms. Um, also, high deeper seas means less light coming through the coral reefs, uh, and coral reefs depend very much on light for much of the activity that occurs on those. Uh, so damage to coral reefs affects fish populations. You know, coral reefs are sort of nurseries for many different types of fish, um, and so damage to coral reefs has a, a sort of knock-on effect on the entire marine food chain and could lead to a significant drop in the availability of different types of fish. Uh, now, fish stocks are already under massive stress. So I'm sure most of you are well aware. I'm sure you've all read the rather dramatic figure that uh, you know, the biomass of large fish in the oceans is now down to 10% of what it was 50 years ago, largely as a result of huge overfishing. Uh, and uh, this, could not, this could depress fish populations even further than that. Now, again, that matters from a, from a human perspective uh, because uh, fish is a major source of protein, particularly in developing countries. And the World Bank has estimates that in most of the poorer countries of the world, about 30% of protein comes from fish. Uh, and, and poor countries don't have the, the land or the water to grow beef. Um, growing meat is expensive, labor is, it's labor intensive, it's land intensive, it's water intensive. Uh, fish don't require any of those things. So fish is a convenient source of protein, particularly in poor countries. So you know, the dramatic drop in, we've had in fish stocks already is having an impact on nutrition in poor countries push those down further than the effect could be, could be augmented. Um, human health. Uh, I've got less to say about that, but there, there is an issue here. Um, it's generally expected as the um, world temperatures increase, you know, the range of insects that carry diseases will increase as well. 
and specifically there have been a number of studies of you know, the potential for an increase in the range of, of mosquito carrying, of malaria carrying mosquitoes. Um, as the temperature was, the world warms up, these will have a wider range. There's actually one quite interesting set of data uh, looking at uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, as, you, you know, as you go up Mount Kilimanjaro, the bottom of Mount Kilimanjaro is, uh, is, mos is a malarial zone because it's, it's warm enough that mosquito-carrying malaria, malaria-carrying mosquitoes can live there. As you go up the mountain, um, you get out of the malarial zone because it becomes colder and the mosquitoes can't survive. And the, 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 the boundary between the malarial and non-malarial zones has risen by about 500 feet uh, in the last few decades. Uh, so again, there's, you, know, you can visibly see the, uh, the boundary of the malarial, non-malarial zone shifting in response to, to temperature changes. And the most visible thing, obviously, is the, the melting of the snows on Mount Kilimanjaro, which is now much less snow covered than it used to be back in Hemingway's day. Uh, but less visible, but also prob probably equally important, or maybe more important, is the shifting in the malarial boundary upwards in this case. Um, last of these um, sort of market-type responses I want to talk about is the impact of climate change on the world's uh, hydrological systems. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about this, and particularly give you an example based on the story in California. Um, so California is one of the uh, most productive agricultural states in the United States. It's a really major food producing region. It produces a huge amount of very high value food. Uh, now there are areas where the food is grown in California, it doesn't rain, ever. Uh, and in fact, it doesn't rain much in any parts of California. Uh, but there's a lot of precipitation and it falls as snow in the winter. And it falls as snow in the mountains of California in the north and east. Uh, and then you get into, during the winter, you get heavy snowfall in the northeast of California, it builds up in the mountains, you get snowpack there. And then what happens is that during the late spring and summer, that snowpack melts, it flows down the streams and provides irrigation for the very hot, arid regions in central and southern California. Uh, and so there's uh, almost all of the water that's used for irrigation in, in, in the agricultural areas of California comes from the mountains in the northeast, and it comes from the melting snow. Now, as the climate is warming, What's happening is you're getting the same amount of precipitation in the northeast of California, but more of it is falling as rain and less of it is falling as snow. And when the rain falls, it doesn't stay in the mountains. It just falls straight down, comes straight down the streams. So what you're getting is stream, fall, stream flow in the winter rather than in the summer. And if you extrapolate this process far enough, you get to come to a point where there is very little snow at all. There's little snowpack in the, in the mountains, and all of the precipitation will fall in the winter as rain, will run down the rivers in the winter, and there'll be nothing left in the rivers in the summer. So you'll get, a, you'll get the same amount of flow in the rivers, but the timing will change, and the flow will be in the winter and the spring, and not in the summer. But the summer is when it's actually needed from an agricultural perspective. The impact on this in agriculture could be quite far-reaching. The same thing is happening in the Andes, and a lot of agricultural regions in South America are uh, irrigated by a mixture of, of snow melt and glacier melt from the Andes. And again, there's a lot of evidence that, that, that water is the timing of that flow is significantly different. The glacial melt is much less because the glaciers have retreated, and the snow melt is less because there's less snow and more rain. Uh, and the same thing happens in the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, Tibetan Plateau actually is worth talking about more. It's a map of the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, you possibly can't read very clearly, but there's a number of very major rivers that originate in the Tibetan, Tibetan Plateau. I'll list them in a, in a later slide. Um, and these rivers are fed again by snowmelt from the Tibetan Plateau. You get heavy snow on the Tibetan Plateau in winter, 
spring and summer it melts, that water flows down those rivers and provides most of the irrigation for the Indian subcontinent and for Southeast Asia. Very, very important indeed. That's actually a picture of the Tibetan plateau from, from a satellite, in fact, and this here, just for your amusement, is Mount Everest. It's from a US satellite looking south over the Tibetan plateau. So these are some of the rivers that take off from the Tibetan plateau. The Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Yellow River, the Yangtze, and the Mekong. And there's also a number of smaller rivers that are all fed by melting snow from the Tibetan plateau. And they provide the bulk of the irrigation for agriculture for several billion people who live in the Indian subcontinent, China, and other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, so if you get a situation where the, Tibetan, the precipitation on the Tibetan plateau changes from principally snow to principally rain, then have a profound and far-reaching impact on agriculture in Southeast Asia. Uh, and the consequences are very quite dramatic. Uh, you'll find that the stream for the, the total flow over the course of a year in these rivers could be the same, but much of the flow will be earlier in the year, in the winter and the spring, much less in the summer. And the summer is typically when this flow is actually needed for agricultural purposes. And this is an impact on agriculture over and above the impact from temperature increase that I mentioned earlier on. So there's two separate hits on agriculture. As a result, one as a result of temperature rise, second as a result of changes, potential changes to the hydrological cycle. And nobody's actually quantified uh, the likely impacts of this, this, uh, this change uh, in the hydrological cycle on, uh, on agriculture. Okay, now let me talk about some of the uh, slightly fuzzier uh, aspects of the consequences of climate change. Fuzzier in the sense of less precise, less easy to quantify, uh, but not in the sense of less important in any way. Um, one of the remarkable predictions that the IPCC's last report makes, one which really didn't get a lot of attention, um, but I think is in many ways quite dramatic, uh, is that you know, on a, a business-as-usual scenario, uh, by the end of the century, something like 30 to 40 percent of all known species, that's plants, animals, uh, and insects, could be extinct as a result of climate change. Now, we know of you know, probably of the order of 10 million species, so that's a forecast that you know, three to four million species might actually go extinct by the end of this century or early next century because of climate change. That's a total transformation of the natural world around us. Total transformation of the natural world around us. Um, and a question that you know, we have to ask in trying to assess the economics and the social consequences of climate change, does that matter? Would it matter to us that you know, millions of species go extinct? because of the way we're using energy and because of the lifestyles that we've adapted. And that's a tough question to, to answer. And here's some icons of extinction. Um, the one that I'm sure you've all heard about is likely to go extinct because of climate change is the polar bear. They're shown having a hard time making his way up between crumbling ice flows. Um, here's one which you've probably heard less about, bees. Uh, lots, of insect, lots of insect populations are going extinct. In particular, bee populations are going extinct that actually has some surprising and quite significant economic consequences. Um, now, the, the issue of extinction raises complicated questions. I mean, as far as I see it, it raises two types of questions. There are ethical questions, and there are kind of practical utilitarian questions. Now, the ethical question, obviously, is do we have the right to condemn to extinction almost half of the species with which we share the Earth? Now, is that, are we, are, you know, there's a moral question, I think, involved in in driving so many species to extinction. Do we have the right to do that? Because that's what we are, in effect, doing. Um, then the, the practical question, the utilitarian question, is will the extinction of so many of our fellow species actually affect us negatively? 
and that's a, that's, a, that's a utilitarian question, leaving the ethical issue on one side. Now, the ethical question, I think you guys have to judge for yourselves. It's, um, you know, it's a question of your own personal values and your own personal value system. To me, the obvious answer is, the answer is obviously no. This is not something we should allow to happen. I mean, I think there's some intrinsic value in, in any forms of life. And I don't think we have the right to condemn these species to extinction. But that's obviously a personal value judgment. You don't absolutely have to agree with that. Um, and interestingly enough, religious groups, including some of the religious right in the United States, whom I was referring to earlier, are actually now beginning to get worried about this. I was recently shared a platform with a gentleman called uh, Richard Sizek, who is one of the leaders of the, the Southern Baptist churches in the U.S. And those are the people I was talking to earlier who believe that the Bible is literally true and that uh, are profoundly hostile to the theory of evolution. But they are now getting worried about species extinction. And you know, they feel that we have some sort of stewardship responsibilities to other species. Um, so they're beginning to feel some ambivalence about the climate change issue because of this. And that's, I think, to me, an interesting development, political development. Um, now, the, so I said it's, you know, it's hard to, said species extinction raises two questions, right? The, the ethical question and the utilitarian question. Um, the ethical question, as I said, is ultimately up to you to answer for yourselves. Um, utilitarian question is also quite a tough question to answer. because We don't really have the data that we need on this. But I'm going to suggest to you that probably the extinction of species does matter to us. Um, but biologists certainly argue that it does. A lot of biological literature suggests that you know, the extinction of other species uh, may threaten the viability of our own species. There's a nice quote from a guy called Ed Wilson, who's a very distinguished uh, biologist at Harvard, who spent most of his life studying insects. And he says, we need them, but they don't need us. Uh, we need them, why do we need them? Well, we need them, for example, I had a picture of a bee up a couple of minutes earlier. Bees, bees are insects. They're certainly going extinct at a fairly rapid rate at the moment. Now, uh, you probably remember when you were kids, stories about the birds and the bees and pollination. Uh, you know, bees actually play an important role in pollinating. Uh, and a lot of food wouldn't exist if it weren't pollinated by insects. Uh, most of the large-scale crops, most of the large-scale grain crops, have been genetically modified so they don't need pollination. They self-pollinate. Uh, they're hermaphrodites, I guess you might say. Um, but fruit and vegetables need pollination, and they need pollination by insects. And in areas where insect populations have crashed, uh, the yield of fruit and vegetables has also crashed. Uh, that's happened in particular in New York State, uh, my home. Uh, New York State is, New York is known as the Big Apple. It's known as the Big Apple because apple growing is a major activity in the, the, the agricultural regions of, of New York. And the apple yields in New York State have crashed recently because the bee populations have crashed. And the uh, apple blossoms haven't been fertilized, haven't been pollinated uh, by insects. So the lack of insects, believe it or not, has a real economic cost. Uh, it's difficult to know precisely what that is on a global scale, but it's, it's clear that it's real. And it's another, another sort of blow at our agricultural systems, potentially. Um, what about other species? So that, that beast up there, I believe, that's not a cuddly toy. That's a uh, Pacific sea otter. Um, a Pacific sea otter is what biologists call a keystone species. A keystone species is a species with the following property. If you pull it out of an ecosystem, the equilibrium of the ecosystem changes radically. The behavior of the ecosystem really changes quite radically. Um, so in this particular case, the Pacific sea otter was a keystone species for the marine ecosystems off the coast of California. Pacific sea otter obviously has nice fur on it, and it was hunted to extinction. And the last ones were killed sometime early in the 20th century. Uh, now, prior to that, the, Pacific, the, the, um, the coastal waters of California were very productive fisheries. 
the demise of the sea otter, the, you know, the extinction of the sea otter there led to a radical change in the marine ecosystems. And they became vastly less productive as fisheries and much, much less useful to human beings. Why? Because the principal food of the Pacific sea otter is the sea urchin. Um, they control the population of sea urchins. They die for sea urchins, they bring them up, they break them with rocks and they eat the contents. Uh, you must have seen pictures of that on nature and things of that sort. Uh, so when the Pacific sea otters went extinct, the, explode, the population of sea urchins exploded. Uh, sea urchins are very destructive in a number of ways. Uh, and it's the growth in the population of sea urchins that uh, led to the rapid decrease in the, in the productivity of marine ecosystems off the coast of California. Now, this particular story has a happy ending because there were some sea, um, Pacific sea otters left in Oregon, up north of California, and they were brought back down. They brought down to California. Legislation was passed protecting them, um, protecting them from, uh, from furriers, and the population of Pacific sea otters has now been re-established, and the fisheries off the coast of California are once again productive fisheries. Uh, but then it's an example of how you know, the la that pulling one species out of a complex ecosystem radically changed the value of that ecosystem to humans, transformed it from quite a valuable, productive ecosystem from which a lot of people could make their living to a, a totally unproductive ecosystem. Um, here's another example of the somewhat unexpected consequences of extinction. So that's the thing called the passenger pigeon. Uh, passenger pigeons were once probably the most numerous birds in the world. Uh, they were unique to North America, uh, and their population in North America was estimated to be in the range of billions, with a B. Uh, in fact, early settlers in North America commented on the size of the flocks of passenger pigeons. Uh, passenger pigeons used to move around in flocks which contained over a million individuals per flock. And some of the early settlers have reports of you know, the, the, the sky being darkened for 10 or 20 minutes as flocks of passenger pigeons flew overhead. The last passenger pigeon died in about 1915. They're now completely extinct. Um, a couple of lessons from this. One is that you know, even a remarkably robust animal uh, with a huge population can be driven to extinction if it's hunted without limit and if its habitat is destroyed, which are the two factors that, that destroy the passenger pigeons. But more interestingly, in some sense, is the fact that um, people now associate the outbreak of a disease called Lyme disease uh, with the demise of the passenger pigeon. Lyme disease is a very unpleasant tick-borne disease, which is the scourge of large parts of northeast America. If you, have, if you live in New York City and you have a country home up in the, uh, Connecticut or New York State or Massachusetts, uh, then one of the things that bugs you all summer is the worry that you'll be bitten by ticks and you will get Lyme disease. Lyme disease is both an unpleasant disease and potentially a fatal disease. In fact, one of my neighbors in New York recently died of Lyme disease. So this is a serious disease. Um, and it has a real consequence. Now, the... Um, for a long time, people didn't associate the ending of the passenger pigeon population with Lyme disease, but about 12 years ago, a series of articles appeared in Science suggesting a link between the demise of the passenger pigeon and the outbreaks of Lyme disease, which appeared within about four or five years after the, the last passenger pigeon died. Um, and the, the connection there, again, is, is a long and complicated one, but just giving you a real brief summary, passenger pigeons uh, ate um, acorns from oak trees. Much of the land in the northeast America was covered with oak forests, and these birds ate, ate the, the acorns from oak trees in very large scale. Once the population of passenger pigeons was uh, destroyed, and there were many, many acorns available for other species that use acorns as their principal food. And in particular, deer and mice eat acorns. And the populations of both deer and mice exploded after the demise of the passenger pigeon, because there was much less competition now for the food, principal, for their principal food, acorns. Now, both deer and mice 
are hosts for the tick that carries Lyme disease and the tick whose bite gives Lyme disease. So with an explosion in the population of deer and mice, you get an explosion in the hosts of the, of the, the ticks for Lyme disease, an explosion in the population of the ticks that make Lyme disease possible. And it's at that point that Lyme disease started being transferred to humans uh, because deer and mice obviously interact with human populations. Um, so that's an interesting example of a totally unexpected consequence and rather negative consequence for humans of the extinction of uh, a particular species. You know, ex ante, if you'd asked me you know, what the, whether there would be any consequence, any economic consequence of the extinction of a bird like the passenger pigeon, I'd have said no, it would be a great pity if it went extinct, but I can't see any possible economic consequences of that. Turns out there probably have been some quite far-reaching, quite serious consequences. So I give you these examples just to suggest that although we don't really understand much about extinction and whether extinction will matter to us or not, there are enough examples to suggest that we should be very cautious. You know, if the IPCC is correct, if business as usual will lead to the extinction of literally millions of species by the end of the century, and just a few of those are Pacific sea otters or passenger pigeons or whatever, then the consequences could be quite serious and quite nasty. So, looking at all this stuff from an economic perspective, we need to ask, you know, how much do all of these impacts of a warmer world matter? Economists are in the business of sort of weighing up the costs and benefits. So we need to weigh up the costs of stopping climate change uh, against the benefits to be gained from stopping it. Um, now, there's actually a fair amount of agreement on what it would take to stop climate change, stop at least in the sense of stabilizing CO2 emissions so that the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is somewhere in the region of 450 to 500 parts per million. Um, and the general assessment of this is that this would cost somewhere in the region of 1% to 2% of world income. I know some people put it a little bit lower than that, some people would go as high as 2.5%, but most, most estimates are in that sort of range of you know, 1% to 2% of world income. And this is a cost that comes from some of the things I mentioned before, you know, replacing fossil fuels by nuclear, replacing them by wind, replacing them by solar, replacing petrol-driven cars by, by electric cars and so on. And there's, there's some cost to all of that. Um, where there's a lot of disagreement in the economics literature on, is on the costs of climate change. You know, I listed all those consequences of climate change earlier. Uh, where the economics profession disagrees quite a lot is, you know, what is the economic value of those consequences? Do they matter a lot or do they not matter a lot? Uh, now, the, um, the, the Stern Review, um, which everybody here obviously is very familiar with, uh, placed a cost of at least 5% of GDP on the sort of changes I was talking about here. The Stern Review actually didn't try to value things like extinction of species. And then they focused principally on the sort of changes which would be captured through markets. Um, so we were avoiding the issues I was talking about just a couple of minutes ago. Um, but on the other issues, things like impact on agriculture, impact on sea level, uh, impact on human health and so on, they placed a cost of somewhere of the region of 5% uh, or of at least 5% uh, of world income. Now Bill Nordhaus, who's a professor at Yale and one of the principal critics of the Stern Review, uh, placed these costs at 1%. 1% 1 and 5% don't necessarily sound that different, but if the cost of action is 2%, then actually 1% plus 5% is a crucial distinction. Because if it costs you 2% to stop these things, and the cost of allowing them is 5%, then you should allow them. If it costs you 2% to stop them, and the cost of allowing them is 1%, then you shouldn't stop them. Uh, so that difference is actually quite a critical one here. Um, my own personal take on this is that I find it very difficult to believe that anybody could seriously put forward the idea that the consequences of the cost of climate change are just 1% of, of, of world income. 
my income dropped by 1%, I wouldn't notice it. If most of your incomes dropped by 1%, I don't think you'd notice it. You might even know what your incomes are to within 1%. Uh, we probably don't even measure national income to with an accuracy of 1%, but I'm quite certain we don't actually. It's within, that's within the accounting era for most people. Um, so, you know, if my income dropped, your income dropped by 1%, we wouldn't be aware of it. On the other hand, if all these consequences I was talking about just now occurred, world food production dropped by 50%, the hydrological cycle would change, many species went extinct, sea level rose, we would most certainly notice it. The consequences would be far, quite far-reaching and quite part of our everyday lives. That suggests to me that a figure of 1% is just completely unrealistic. Um, so I certainly plump for the Stern Review. And indeed, I, I, my own personal feeling is that the Stern Review is an underestimate of the costs of climate change. Um, they, they, they did say at least 5%, and they did say they were leaving out of the consequences of a loss of biodiversity, the extinction of species. Um, so that's, that's, they were open, very open about that. And I think that um, those add very significantly to the cost of climate change. I think that in the long run, the transformation of the natural world, the extinction of large numbers of species, be one of the most important consequences of climate change. Um, we just talk briefly, and really quite briefly, about the second issue I alluded to earlier, which is the, the risk of a catastrophe associated with climate change. Um, is there a risk of some massive and sudden catastrophe associated with the warming of the Earth? Now, people have put their finger on two possibilities here. And scientists have put their finger on two possibilities. One is uh, changing what's, rather, what's called the thermohaline circulation, which is what you and I would think of as the Gulf Stream. In other words, one possibility is that as a result of climate change, the Gulf Stream could stop flowing and stop transporting heat from the equatorial regions to the North Atlantic. Uh, that was an area of very active concern in the science community about 10 years ago. Since then, they seem to have retreated from that a little bit. And they say it's still a technical possibility, but the chances of that happening seem to be regarded as very, very slight at this point. Uh, what is more, I think, of concern these days is the possibility of the collapse, sudden collapse of a major ice sheet. Now, I showed you in an earlier diagram the consequences for the state of Florida of the melting of various ice sheets, uh, dramatic impact they have on the, you know, the U.S. coastline. Uh, so one of the, the, the interesting questions, and open questions, important questions here, is, is there a possibility for an ice sheet suddenly collapsing? Um, here's some pictures, which I think are interesting in that respect. <clears throat> so this is a picture of the Wilkins Ice Shelf, which is in Antarctica. Um, <clears throat> the area which you can see broken up there uh, <clears throat> is the uh, collapsed ice shelf. You know, two weeks ago, this area I've got the mouse on now was just solid ice, like this here. And in a period of two weeks, it went from solid ice to large numbers of very small fractions, fractured ice flows, and open sea. Uh, that was a dramatic change. No one in the scientific literature community thought that could happen. It was generally assumed that ice sheets would break up only very slowly and over prolonged periods of time. This broke up in a matter of weeks. Uh, so that's forced people to rethink dramatically and significantly how fast ice sheets can change their state and what could possibly happen in this area. Now, in this particular case, there was no consequence for sea level. because This is an ice sheet that's actually sitting in the sea. So the fact that it breaks up doesn't, look right, doesn't raise the sea level. What would really be worrying would be if an ice sheet on the land suddenly broke up like this and slid into the sea. That would raise sea level. Um, and incidentally, there is a potential consequence for sea level here because the, uh, this is obviously land back here, and on that land there's a lot of ice. That ice was being restrained from flowing into the sea by the solid ice on the sea. Once that ice is broken and moved away, then there's no barrier to the ice on the land moving downwards. So one can expect an acceleration of that effect. Here's another picture, not a terribly good picture, I'm afraid. But this is another picture of an even more dramatic breakup. 
Um, what you're seeing, if you look at the top left there, what you're seeing here is a piece of ice which is about 10 kilometers from back to front and about 40 kilometers from left to right. It's quite a big piece of ice. These are all satellite photographs. Uh, and this picture is dated, is timed, these are all on August the 13th last year. This is timed at uh, 1725. Uh, and there's, this is a solid piece of ice at 1725. This is 1750 on the same day. And you can now see a long crack all the way through that piece of ice. That crack is about 25 kilometers long. And it's propagated in 25 minutes. That's 60 kilometers an hour. That crack has gone through an ice sheet which is several hundred feet thick. Uh, very rapid propagation of a crack through that ice sheet there. And by the end of the day, uh, 20 hours, that ice sheet is free-floating. It's completely detached from the land and from where it was detached to before. Again, that's, a, that's another example of a dramatic failure of an ice sheet. Uh, again, this is something which, until these two examples were observed, scientists thought simply couldn't happen. They thought ice sheets were stable and retained their structure over many, many decades. And if there were any fracturing of ice sheets, it would happen very, very slowly. Now, again, this had no particular consequences for sea level, because this is a piece of ice that's sitting in the sea at the beginning of this process. But had this been an ice sheet which was on the land, and it fractured in this way and then slid off the land, uh, consequences could have been quite dramatic. Uh, and again, there is a con potential consequence for, for uh, ice on the land, because right here where I'm highlighting with the mouse, you've got some ice sheets on the land. Previously, they were restrained from sliding into the sea by the ice down here beneath them. That ice has now moved away, so this ice sheet on the land here is now free to slide down into the sea. So again, there could be consequences for sea level rise. So um, the whole science of glaciers, the behavior of glaciers and ice sheets is undergoing a major rethink just at the moment. Um, a couple of years ago, people would have said this was just completely impossible. And all the models of the behavior of ice, computer models of the behavior of ice sheets and the behavior of glaciers, just that they would melt slowly but stably over very, very long periods of time, in centuries. Uh, now people are realizing those models are wrong. Uh, these ice sheets have fractured very, very quickly, discovered that the Greenland ice shelf, which is actually on the land, not on the sea, and is therefore potentially more dangerous, is melting about 10 times faster than the computer models suggested it should be melting. Uh, and we don't fully understand why that is. So there is obviously some risk associated with the behavior of these ice sheets. Um, and we don't really know what that risk is, unfortunately. Uh, it's, it's difficult to know how to think rationally about this. We don't know whether the probability of a major ice sheet breaking up and sliding into the sea is you know, one in a million, one in a hundred thousand, one in ten thousand, one in a thousand, even one in a hundred. Uh, you know, we don't know what the probability is. We do know that the consequences, if that happened, would be very far-reaching. Uh, and we could have a sudden rise in sea level, we could have a precise sea level rising over significantly over a very, very short period of time, which could be potentially catastrophic. Uh, but whether that's a one in a million event or a one in 10,000 event, uh, we really don't know, or maybe even more than one in 10,000. Uh, so it's hard to think rationally about something that we don't really know, have any sense of what the likelihood is, what the probability is. Uh, now we could say, well, we, this is such a serious risk, we just don't feel like inclined to take it at all. We have to do everything we possibly can to prevent such a thing from happening. But whether that's a totally rational approach, I'm not quite certain. Uh, again, there's a lot of debate in the economic literature less acrimonious, I think, than on some of the other issues in this area, but it's a lot of debate about how exactly we react to this possibility. Um, clearly, there is a non-zero chance of something very, very nasty happening suddenly, uh, but whether that chance is sufficiently high that we should really base our policy on it is just not clear at this stage. Okay, so let me try to wrap this up. Um, 
I've talked about two major issues in terms of the economics of, of climate change. One is you know, how we value the consequences of climate change. I've outlined what I think are the consequences of climate change. There's the impact of climate change on agriculture, on sea level, on the hydrological system, and so on, impact for extinction of species. Uh, and I've talked about whether these matter economically and socially. Um, and you know, some aspects of these are hard to grapple with. I think the extinction of species in particular is very hard to grapple with. I think it's one of the most important aspects of what's going to happen from changing climate, but it's also one of the hardest ones to, to evaluate, uh, both economically and also ethically. Um, also, I think the, the risk of catastrophe is very hard to deal with. Uh, there is obviously some risk of a catastrophic outcome, and there may be catastrophes waiting to happen which, other than the breakup of ice sheets. Uh, you know, the, uh, a couple of years back, people would have said there was no chance at all of this happening. Um, Fifteen years back, they would have said there was no chance at all of the thermohaline circulation changing and the Gulf Stream stopping operating. Uh, so you know, people are discovering new potential catastrophes as the understanding of climate science evolves and changes. Uh, so in a couple of years from now, there may be other things that we're worrying about. Um, but anyway, it's clear that there are you know, potentially nasty events out there uh, which could have some far-reaching consequences, which we don't really understand very well. And exactly how we react to that is unclear. But even if we just focus on the things that we do understand, which is the impact of climate change on sea level, the impact on agriculture, uh, the impact on uh, the hydrological cycle. And it's clear there's enough there, I think, to be extremely worrying and extremely concerning and to justify rather a strong case uh, for uh, immediate action on the climate front. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for that excellent lecture. And now we've got plenty of time for questions. I can see you're all keen to ask them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take questions in clumps of three or so. And the only thing I would like to ask is that it is genuinely, please, a question, as opposed to a viewpoint with a question mark at the end. So uh, we've got two gentlemen over there who are particularly keen to ask questions. So if we take the uh, gentleman with the grey jumper first and then with the what I think is a purple jumper after that. When you were talking about the costs of climate change, um, it occurred to me that in relatively affluent parts of the world, food is a relatively small um, portion of our expenditure. But if the world food output declined by 30 or 40 percent, as you said was likely, the price of food would, of course, uh, increase vastly and um, probably become a much, much more significant um, proportion of um, people's expenditure. And I wonder how that, um, if that has been factored into the estimates for the cost of climate change. The gentleman beside you before we take, take uh, I'm very sympathetic to your conclusions, but I'm not sure if the costs of climate change being 1 to 2% of GDP passes a, a quick sense check. That seems to be the kind of expenditure that you make after losing a war or something of that level of seriousness. And also, it seems that those costs are both front-loaded and regressive. So it seems that the impact would be very, very high. Okay, why don't we, why don't we deal with those two questions okay. first, and then sure. we'll take some more. Okay, um, both interesting questions. So on the issue of food, yeah, absolutely. You're completely right. Um, 
when food prices rose quite sharply, I guess in the earlier half of last year, uh, food suddenly became a more significant item in the budget, even in relatively rich countries. Um, in, in economic terms, we'd say the demand for food is very inelastic, very insensitive to price. So the proportion of your income that you spend on food is going to increase very sharply if the supply falls and the, uh, and the price rises. And the way that's captured in sort of a cost-benefit analysis is to talk about what we call the consumer surplus associated with consumption of food. I mean, the point is that people are willing to pay an awful lot more for food than they actually do pay for it at the moment. Countries like this or the U.S., you know, we pay relatively little for food. But if food were scarce, we'd be willing to pay a great deal more. And um, what we're interested in, you know, in evaluating you know, the impact of a change in the food supply, we'd look not at what people are actually paying for food, but what they would in principle be willing to pay, and what's the maximum they would be willing to pay for that food. And that's the way we'd value the loss of the food. We'd include both their actual expenditure and what we call the consumer surplus generated by the food. And that's a, not always an easy thing to do statistically, but uh, that's, that's the in principle the right thing to do. And did the Stern Review do that? I don't think it did, did it? Well, not in... This is one of the authors of the Stern Review. I mean, not in so much detail. Uh, the models we used to produce cost estimates included that sort of thing, but uh, a sort of in a reduced form, if you like, so relying on other people's research to okay. price in those sorts of effects. Yeah. I mean, there's a famous uh, statement, again, I hate to speak against him, but there's a um, famous statement by Bill Nordhouse, the, well, his, his results I quoted at some point, who said, you know, the um, food only accounts for 2% of expenditure in the United States. So a dramatic drop in the supply of food really doesn't matter, because if the supply of food goes from, goes by, drops by half, it's only, we only lose 1% of GDP. And that's obviously a totally ridiculous statement. Uh, and what he's missing there is the fact that you know, there's a huge amount of consumer surplus associated with the consumption of food at the prices at which it's available in the US. And there's a vast difference between what people actually pay for their food, what they would be willing to pay for it. And it's the latter, which is a real measure of the economic value of the food. Uh, second question was on the, the cost of stopping climate change, which I, I mentioned the range of 1% to 2%. Um, there is some dispute about that. The, um, there are certainly quite a lot of measures uh, that one could take to reduce the output of greenhouse gases, uh, which have little or no cost at all. There's a famous uh, study by McKinsey's, the consulting firm, which has a kind of a, a cost curve for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and they show a lot of costs as being negative. And in particular, they show that uh, we can do a lot, for example, in the UK and in the US to make buildings more thermally efficient, uh, which would actually have pay for itself. Uh, insulating buildings, for example, pays for itself. Using more efficient transportation pays for itself. So in you know, the long run, the costs of that sort of measure are actually zero or, in fact, negative. Um, but there are some real costs, ultimately. Uh, you know, the, the being more efficient in our use of energy will only go so far, and that's not far enough. Uh, if we really want to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions at 450 to 500 parts per million, we actually have to make very, very big changes in the production of energy and move substantially away from fossil fuels. Uh, and unfortunately, coal, although very dirty, is very cheap. Uh, it's a very cheap way of producing energy, and coal is very energy intensive. And replacing coal by, uh, uh, by a renewable sources like uh, wind and solar, though I think in the long run very justified, does have a real cost associated with it. And the U.S. Department of Energy, for example, recently, under the new administration, came out with a goal of producing 25% of all U.S. electricity from renewables by 2025. It's the kind of goal that politicians like, I guess. Um, and I actually sat down and worked out what investment that would take. 
Uh, you know, it costs roughly, I mean, renewable energy in the United States, the capacity, installing renewable energy capacity costs about $2,000 per, per kilowatt of capacity. So you can sit down and work out how much investment you'd have to carry out in renewables to do that. And the answer is about $2 trillion. Um, and that's, you know, that's affordable, but it's a lot of money. Um, that's even in an era of you know, multi-billion dollar bank bailouts, $2 trillion is quite a lot of money. Uh, it uh, makes you know, the bailout of AIG look like a deal. <laughs> Great. So we've got two gentlemen at the front in blue. First one there, second one there. Yes, my name is Mr. Bonfa, and uh, I would like to, let's say, put the attention on one issue. You mentioned that government is a problem, it can be a solution. And I think I support this. Sorry? Can you move the microphone away from Facebook a bit? That's it, yeah. yeah. And I think I support this concept here. And the reason is why, uh, I mean, if we look at a little bit of concept of climate change as a whole, we see that we don't have enough knowledge in order to understand the climate change. You just, for instance, I'm involved myself in uh, develop some quantitative analysis in a more holistic approach on the risk of climate change. I'm looking for data, at least here in Europe. There is no centralized knowledge data where you can start study a little bit what's happened in a long term and a short term about climate. So how then you can estimate all this cost on economics and on social impact? That's my question. Okay. question there. Professor Hill, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, you had announced that you were going to leave out the controversial issue of discounting. However, we know that uh, Stearns at Nordhaus' different findings in respect to the present values of future climate damages are mainly a consequence of a specification of different discount rates. Could you share your opinion on this issue with us and uh, what should be the future research agenda in this area according to your opinion? Okay, yeah, be happy to do that. Any more of that one. Big question like that, maybe we should take another question, so Jeff can take the question. Right at the back, all Eakins, I think. Yes, thank you. I'm Paul Eakins from King's College. And um, my, my question is that, uh, having followed this issue for some years, it's clear that the science is changing enormously fast. And you've given us a snapshot of uh, certain kinds of effects, um, some of which might be disputed by some climate scientists, but over which I think there's a fair bit of uh, agreement. Um, but 10 years ago, a similar snapshot would have been completely different, and you made allusion to that on a number of occasions. And I'm wondering whether, um, if you've looked at the estimates of the social cost of carbon and the, the damage costs yeah. over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, you mentioned, for example, that Bill Nordhaus uh, has a 1% figure. Um, I was reading Bill Nordhaus back in the mid-90s and uh, got the impression that he was more or less still talking about a 1% figure. Um, how, how have those costs changed in the literature um, over the last 10 to 15 years? And do they bear any relation, really, to the way in which the science has changed? You want even more time after a question like that, but I'm not <laughs> right. going to give it to you. Okay. Um, so let me deal with your question. It's a question of data and knowledge. Yeah, I mean, evaluating the costs is difficult because of the issue of data. I mean, there's a certain set of costs that we can 
quantify reasonably well. For example, uh, the cost of agricultural product, loss of agricultural productivity. You know, there's a market price for food. We know what food is worth in the marketplace. We can make some estimate, as I was saying before, of the, the actual value of food, which is probably much greater than its actual market price. Um, so there are, there are quite detailed studies of the impact of climate change on agriculture. Uh, again, sea level rise. You know, there are actually some very detailed studies of the distribution of population by altitude. We know how many people live one meter above sea level, how many people live two meters above sea level, how many people live three meters above sea level. And we also have data on agricultural land at one meter, two meters, three meters above sea level. So things like uh, the, the, the agricultural cost of climate change and the sea level cost of climate change, we can estimate with some reasonable degree of precision. Others are much harder to estimate. So for example, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum. There are things that we can estimate, I would say, reasonably well, which doesn't mean exactly, but to a, a degree of precision that you know, I'd feel comfortable stating a number. Uh, and, and I think agriculture and sea level are at that end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is you know, the consequences of extinction of species, uh, where I think we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that this is something which could matter, but no systemic studies and no real framework for quantifying uh, no, the, the possible consequences there. And other things are in between. For example, I mentioned the impact on the hydrological cycle, which will clearly be, uh, I think, important and far-reaching. But um, best of my knowledge, there are no studies of that at all, the consequences of that. But that would be an additional impact on agriculture. Yeah. Well, they're not, yeah, I don't tie them together, but they, I think that they, it's fair enough to keep these things separate. They, the, um, there will be some interaction between the hydrology and the agriculture, and there'll be some interaction also between the two of those and the sea level rise, because sea level rise will submerge some valuable agricultural land uh, and cause you know, salt inundation in some valuable agricultural land. Uh, so you know, sea level rise will certainly have an effect on agriculture, and hydrology will have an effect on agriculture. But to a first approximation, to get a lower bound for these things, I think you can treat them separately. Um, but I agree with you, in principle, there is some interaction there. Issue of discounting, which was the second question. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I've actually written many, many papers on that, and I thought of starting off, when I first uh, thought about this talk, I thought I might talk about discounting. The problem about discounting is it gets technical fast. Uh, and to really get to grips with the issues in discounting, I need to put some mathematical formulae up on the board. And I general experience of giving big audience lectures, we don't know who's out there, is that you should stay away from mathematics. Um, well, that's not my natural tendency. My natural tendency is to, is to stay with mathematics, as plenty of people in the, in the, in the audience know. Um, so let me give you a real quick summary on this. Um, so I think that Nordhaus is completely wrong and that Stern is completely right. And I don't think I'm unique in this. I think that's the general consensus amongst people who come to this with a background in economic theory. There are two different discount rates in economics. And what's happened in this area is they've got confused. It's the pure rate of time preference, which is the rate at which we discount future utilities just because they're in the future. And if you study growth models, that's the delta in the integral naught to infinity to the minus delta TDT expression that you see in most Ramsey models. And there's a thing called the, um, the consumption discount rate, which is the proportional rate of change of the marginal utility of consumption. So if you take U prime e to the minus delta T and you look at the logarithmic change of that over time, that's the consumption discount rate. Now, those are two very different things. Now, the, the, the pure rate of time preference is an ethical choice. It's the rate at which you discriminate against future generations just because they're future generations. And I happen to think that should be zero, because I think you want to treat all people equally. 
And that's the position that most philosophers who have looked at this have taken, and the position that most economic theorists who have looked at this have taken. Uh, the consumption discount rate, on the other hand, can be any number that's appropriate. And it's quite possible to have, for example, a zero period of time preference and a you know, 10, 15% consumption discount rate. Now, there's a formula which you possibly know due to Frank Ramsey, which says the consumption discount rate is equal to the pure rate of time preference plus the elasticity of the margin utility multiplied by the rate of growth of consumption. Now, if you take an elasticity of, say, two or three and a consumption growth rate of five or six, which is the case for, for China, for example, and you've got a consumption discount rate, which is up in the teens, right there. Um, so, um, now that, that relationship actually gets much more complicated if you deal with a multi-good world. Um, but that's, that's a complication I can't actually deal with verbally. Um, for that, I would need some math. So I, mean, I think that you know, when Nordo says that the, um, the right discount rate is 4%, and he deduces this from looking at the uh, return on safe, a long-term return on safe assets, he's getting confused between the pure rate of time preference and the consumption discount rate. In a Ramsey model, the consumption discount rate is related to the rate of return on investment. Uh, but the pure rate of time preference is not. And in, in, in Nordos' DICE model, the discount rate you need to supply that model is a pure rate of time preference, not a consumption discount rate. Now, the consumption discount rate is endogenous in that model. It's part of the solution, not part of the parameters you put in, because it depends on the rate of change of consumption over time. And that's one of the things he's, he's solving the model for that. Okay, so. That's a very short statement. I'm happy to send you some papers on it in more detail. Um, science changing, Paul's question. Yeah, and that's one of the complications in doing economics in this area, isn't it? Uh, you're trying to, you're dealing with a moving target. Um, in general, the science is changing in one direction, though, and that's interesting, which is that uh, the speed of climate change and the consequences of climate change are getting to be seen to be more serious. Uh, so, for example, uh, the issue of ice, ice sheets, and ice flows, and glaciers. I mean, 10 years back, uh, people were very comfortable saying there was really no risk of you know, ice sheets or of glaciers breaking up in less than a couple of hundred years. Uh, that's changing. You know, recently, I talked to some, some people who studied you know, ice sheets at, at Princeton. Um, and they're clearly very confused about what's going on in this area, but they're obviously worried that these things can happen on a much, much shorter timetable than they thought of a few years ago. So the, 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 the change in the science seems to be in the direction of making me war more worried rather than less worried. I haven't heard anything to suggest that the, the change is going in the opposite direction, except possibly on the thermohill and circulation issue. Uh, I talk a lot with Wally Broker, who's one of the guys who came up with that idea initially. And you know, while he was very gung-ho about the risks of thermohaline and circulation failing back in the late 1990s, today he seems to be playing the issue down to a much greater extent. He seems to feel that system is more stable than he'd previously thought. And I don't know whether that's broadly, that, that particular attitude is broadly shared or not. Um, but it, it, is, you know, it is difficult, I agree with you, it's a, it's a real issue trying to keep track with the changing science in this area. But again, I think the science doesn't change, for example, the uh, impact on agriculture. I mean, if you know, provided that the, the temperature predictions from business as usual stay roughly, uh, roughly where they, they have been, then you know, the economic consequences on agriculture will be unchanged. The economic consequences for sea level rise will be, will be unchanged. So there's parts of this which I think are independent of the science, what's likely to change in the science, and parts which are quite sensitive for the science. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll be testing you later on optimal growth in a multi-good, multi-generation world. Um, there's a question from a lady uh, at the back who's wearing a sort of uh, 
black jacket with the green blouse. And then I'll take one from the middle, the gentleman with the uh, purple shirt there. Jacqueline Carras, Independent Climate Change Analyst. Um, I'm going to take it to a slightly different area, which is to what extent, my question is basically, to what extent do the estimates or scenarios of climate change costs, and thus the benefits of mitigation, take into account this, our future behavior over the next 50 or 100 years in the scope for adaptation? My rationale is that this seems to me a very critical issue, because whether we choose to build in flood zones, as this government plans to tomorrow or not, will affect the cost of climate change. A lot of models of agriculture presume that we are actually going to um, try to create cotton fields where we exist that currently have cotton fields. Well, actually, there's scope for adaptation. What Vietnam does with its prawn plants, uh, prawn areas, will affect how resistant those areas are to, uh, are to change. I think this is a really important area, and I think, or my impression is, not very well done by the IPCC and the study yeah, which yeah. studies which underlie it. They're good at energy scenarios, they seem pretty poor at impact scenarios, and that affects our scope for action in the future and what we can do. Okay, but question here in the middle, gentlemen, you got it. Yes, in your, oh, my name is Christian, and I'm an architect. Um, in your introduction, it was mentioned that you have a background in public policy, so I would assume that you probably thought about the tools that could help in addressing these issues. And uh, it seems to me from what was discussed so far that um, the conclusion would be just to adjust the free market by costing the, the benefits and, um, yeah, weighing the costs against the benefits. Um, but um, given that there has been so much in action despite all the knowledge about this, don't you think that there could also be an argument that a shift would be required away from a free, free market model towards um, a discourse in which a market failure actually dominates the whole debate so that a different economic model would be required? I mean, I'm also thinking that the weighing of costs and benefits would happen at a very high level, whereas the people who constitute the market, who go uh, shopping at, at Sainsbury's or Tesco's, they would not do this for themselves. Yeah. Okay, we'll take one more from gentlemen here at the front with the fetching big time. <laughs> Thanks, I'm Cameron Hepburn from the LSE in Oxford. Um, Jeff, I was struck by the description of uh, the United States as a, as a petro-state. <laughs> and I was wondering in, in that context, given that we've just seen that the Australians have delayed the introduction of their emissions trading scheme, whether the Waxman-Markey bill has any hope of getting up by May 22, which was the original suggestion, or indeed any hope of getting up at all in the US, and what that means for Copenhagen. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Um, so, issue of adaptation. No, most of the studies of the costs of climate change are based on a business-as-usual scenario, both on the climate side and on the behaviour side. 
so they assume little on... Well, they assume there's a certain amount of adaptation built in, but not very much, no significant adaptation. For example, the uh, studies that I cited of the impact of agriculture on... of climate change on agriculture assume that we continue to grow the same crops. Uh, now, obviously, one of the things we will be trying to do is to evolve crops which are more resistant to heat and more resistant to drought. Uh, whether we'll be successful in that or not, I don't know. But if we are, are successful, that could obviously offset some or all of those consequences uh, of, of heat stress for, 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 for agriculture. Um, and there have been very few studies of the scope for adaptation like that. And at this point, there's actually very little bit of work being done on adaptation. Because I'm not aware of anybody who's systematically trying to grow crops which are likely to be successful in a much hotter, drier world. Uh, you'd think that would be happening, but it isn't, as far as I'm aware. Um, so I, I think it's, it's correct that there are um, a number of measures we can take uh, in the direction of ad adapting to a, a hotter world, which will reduce those costs. Unfortunately, we don't really know how much they'll reduce them. For example, I don't know uh, what the prospects are of, as I said, of evolving plants that are more resistant to the kind of world we'll be living in in 50 or 60 years. Um, you mentioned people living and building in flood zones. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the issue is not so much flood zones, uh, at least when we talk about rising sea level, it's just you know, coastal plains. Uh, and people are already established in coastal plains. Uh, a large part of the world lives in coastal plains. Um, now, adaptation could take the form of building seawalls around some of these. And there's you know, some small areas where I think you probably could expect to protect uh, existing structures by seawalls. Uh, I think I mentioned Manhattan. You know, you can conceive of building a seawall around Manhattan because the perimeter is uh, 40 miles long or something of that sort. And um, uh, it's a very set of very high-value structures in there, so you could probably justify the cost of building a 40-mile seawall. But for... Um, you know, large agricultural areas uh, with sort of dispersed populations, it's very hard to justify the cost of building a seawall. So there's much, much, not a lot of scope for adaptation uh, in response to sea level rise, unfortunately. But in response to heat, increasing heat, there is. And also potentially in response to some of the health issues posed by climate change. Uh, increasing spread of disease vectors, obviously. Appropriate public health measures can, to some extent, neutralize that. And mosquitoes may, uh, in principle, thrive in some zones where they didn't before, but with the right kind of public health measures, we can eradicate malaria in those areas, even if the mosquitoes are there. Uh, so yes, I think that's an important point. Um, tools from a policy perspective. Um, what are the best tools? Obviously, ultimately, we need to change people's behavior, particularly with respect to the use of energy, the generation and the use of energy. Um, there's several ways of doing that. I mean, one, ob one obvious one from an economic perspective is just to put up the cost of energy so that people are more careful when they use it. And the standard economic perspective to making people more careful about the use of energy, any resource is to put its price up. Um, but you know, there's a lot of inertia, unfortunately, in the way people behave, particularly with respect to energy systems. The uh, demand is very inelastic, response to price, and responses take an awful long time to come. So there's probably room for other measures as well. Um, we need to be, I think we probably need to make people much more conscious of the, the global consequences of their actions. Uh, need to be, it would be nice to move into a world where people think more about the consequences of what they do before they do it. Uh, they think more about the consequences of changing, choosing a particular car, a particular mode of transport, a particular way of heating their home, a particular way of getting energy from uh, energy. Um, 
And then I guess there's largely a question of education, of publicity and education. Um, and again, that's something which hasn't really been tried very widely, so I don't think we have a lot of evidence on how effective that can be. Uh, Cameron's question on the petrostate and the Dingle Boucher, or the, well, the, the, there's two bills, there's the Waxman-Markey bill and the Dingle Boucher bill, uh, and they're both similar. What are the chances of those going through Congress? Well, the um, dynamics of this was fundamentally changed recently. Uh, as you probably know, last year the Supreme Court, as a result of some cases which came up, what I think, from California, no, actually from, from somewhere in the northeastern states, uh, found that carbon dioxide is a pollutant in the terms of the 1973 uh, Clean Air Act. So the 1973 Clean Air Act in the United States gives the Environmental Protection Agency uh, powers to regulate the emission of a pollutant. Uh, so under those powers, it regulates the emission of SO2, NOx, and a whole bunch of things like that. Uh, now, some states have claimed that um, CO2 was also a pollutant and the EPA should be, uh, should be regulating its emissions. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the Bush administration appealed. Uh, they, they won some initial court cases. The Bush administration appealed. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, slightly surprisingly, found in favor and ruled that CO2 is a pollutant under the 1973 Clean Air Act. This gives the Environmental Protection Agency the right, if it thinks appropriate, to regulate the emission of CO2 without any further action on the part of Congress, which is actually a very important event. Uh, and the Environmental Protection Agency announced about three weeks ago that it intends to do that. So they put, in a, put out a discussion document saying, you know, CO2 is a pollutant. We intend to regulate the emission of CO2 from all sources. Um, now, that's radically changed the, the whole congressional dynamics because the um, fossil fuel industry is much more frightened of the EPA than it is of Congress. Uh, you know, the EPA is likely to come up with some very stringent measures. The EPA, you know, Obama's EPA is run by a bunch of environmentalists uh, and, and, and people are very worried about climate change. So if it's left to them, the, the U.S. will get a very, very strong environmental policy on, on CO2. So at this point, the... Um, the fossil fuel lobby is actually trying to promote action in Congress of a type which would preempt action by the EPA. So what the fossil fuel lob lobby is, is working for is a weak Waxman-Markey bill or a weak dingle boucher bill, uh, which would both which would you know set standards which are lower than those that the EPA is likely to set on its own, and which would preempt action by the EPA. So the it's not clear how things are going to evolve at this point. Uh, now the, 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 sort of the two sides have just switched, two, people, two groups have just switched sides. The environmentalists were pressing for action in Congress, the, the coal lobby was pressing against action, now that's switched completely. The environmentalists are now rather happy with the status quo because they have an environmentalist running the EPA and the Supreme Court has said she has the power to, to regulate CO2 emissions as a pollutant. Um, the uh, coal industry and the oil industry are obviously very unhappy with that. So it's not clear what's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting situation. But the, you know, the fallback point, this is a bargaining game, and the fallback point has just been changed dramatically uh, in favor of the environmental groups. And so that is presumably going to change the bargain that emerges, and we all know from you know, Nash bargaining theory. Um, so my guess is that um, you know, a year from now, the U.S. will have a, a fairly aggressive CO2 policy. It may be that, that comes directly from the EPA, uh, and it may be that's a result of, um, of uh, congressional action. But I think with uh, you know, a significant majority in the House and potentially a majority, a blocking majority in the Senate, 
Democrats will be able to insist on reasonably strong action. Um, the, 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 I guess the, the one downside of this is that the EPA doesn't have the power to do something like introduce a cap-and-trade system or a uniform carbon tax. So anything that the EPA does is likely to be inefficient from an economic perspective. They're, in other words, they're likely to regulate um, in much the same way as they've regulated automobile emissions. You know, they're likely to put tailpipe standards on the emission of CO2 and uh, uh, emission limits on the standard emission of CO2 from, uh, from power stations. And they're likely to do that in a way which doesn't actually permit one to equalize marginal costs across, across applications. So that actually could, could significantly increase the costs of dealing with climate change, as we know. Uh, but it's a very interesting situation right now, very interesting indeed. Well, on that note of, I suppose, qualified optimism from an environmental perspective, I'm afraid that we've run out of time for questions. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for uh, being so patient and uh, listening intently, but I'd particularly like to thank Jeff once again for his excellent public lecture. So please join me once again in thanking him.